This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It's not often that one man can precipitate the fall of an entire empire. But this was what happened to Yangdi, the last emperor of the short-lived Sui dynasty. Many historians consider him to be a despot who rose to power after murdering his father and brother. His lavish lifestyle, paranoia, and expensive military campaigns led directly to his own overthrow and murder. But others take a more nuanced view of the controversial emperor. Yangdi undoubtedly had many flaws, but he was also responsible for expanding trade routes and enacting government, legal, and military reforms that provided the foundation for the ensuing Tang Dynasty's golden age. Either way, he suffered a tragic fate. Murder marked his rise to power, and murder marked his end. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to another episode of Historical Figures. Every Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives and big events, and theirs may be one of the biggest contributions to progress in the history of the world. Today, we're discussing Yangdi, the second and final emperor of the Sui dynasty. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of podcast shows on your favorite podcast directory. A lot of you ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Now, back to the life of Yangdi. Yangdi was born in the year 569 during a turbulent time in China's history. The expansive Han Dynasty, which had united China for over 400 years until 220 CE, had disintegrated over the past nearly 350 years into multiple warring kingdoms. The four most prominent were Chen, Northern Qi, Western Liang, and Northern Zhou. Yangdi's family was descended from an aristocratic clan that could trace their lineage all the way back to the Han Dynasty. 
But Yangdi's parents were born in the new dynasty of Northern Zhou. Yangdi's paternal grandfather, General Yang Zhong, served in the Northern Zhou military under his maternal grandfather, a Zhong new general named Dugu Xin. In Mandarin, family surnames are stated before personal names. For example, John Smith would call himself Smith John. Yang was the family surname. The grandparents decided their children would make a good match. And Yang Di's mother, 13-year-old Dugu Chieluo, married his father, 16-year-old Yang Jian, in 557. The two teenagers soon fell deeply in love with each other. Jian adored Chieluo so much that he made her a very unusual promise. He swore that he wouldn't have children with any other women. It was very common throughout China's history for emperors and other wealthy men to take on multiple wives or concubines, particularly in southern China. While the first wife had an elevated position, she still had to put up with children from all of the wives her husband brought into the house after her. But monogamy was a big deal to both Yan Jin and Dugu Chiluo. They had both grown up in the north, where concubines were considered somewhat gauche, and their preference for monogamy was evidence of just how much they loved each other. Interestingly enough, their emphasis on monogamy and faithfulness would later play a role in their son Yangdi's ascension to the throne. Just four years after Chialua and Jian were married, 17-year-old Chialua gave birth to their eldest daughter, Yang Lihua, in 561. Her eldest son, the future crown prince Yang Yang, was born either just before or just after Li Hua. Yang Di was born eight years after Li Hua in 569. His original name was supposed to be Yang Ying, with Ying being his personal name. But his father, Jian, soon changed Yang Di's first name from Ying to Guan at the advice of fortune tellers. Di is actually Yang's title and means emperor. But since he's remembered in English as Yang Di, that's how we will refer to him. As Yang Di grew up, his father was engaging in some risky Game of Thrones-esque political maneuvers. Chinese imperial politics is frequently compared to Game of Thrones because many Chinese dynasties were rich with intrigue as friends and family members manipulated and backstabbed each other to obtain power. Yang Di's father, Jian, started out as a high-ranking military official in the court of Emperor Wu. Emperor Wu liked Jian so much that he married Jian's 12-year-old daughter, Li Hua, to his 14-year-old son, the Crown Prince Yun, in 573. When Emperor Wu died in 578 at the age of 35, Crown Prince Yun became Emperor Xuan. This meant nine-year-old Yang Di was now the brother of an empress. But even though Emperor Xuan was married to Jian's daughter, Li Hua, he didn't trust Jian. According to one story, he once warned his young wife, Li Hua, that he was considering having her entire clan executed for treason because he worried that her talented and clever father might be plotting to overthrow him. It wasn't uncommon for a paranoid emperor to execute an entire family based on the actions of one individual. Luckily, Jian was able to soothe Emperor Xuan's concerns, and the Yang clan survived. But 20-year-old Emperor Xuan was so uninterested in ruling that just a year after he ascended to the throne, he passed his throne to his six-year-old son, Jing, in 579. 
Making things even more complicated, Jing wasn't Empress Li Hua's son. The six-year-old was actually the son of one of Emperor Xuan's concubines. The aristocrats of Northern Zhou were not pleased to see someone of Jing's lineage ascend the throne. Yang Di's family had expected one of their descendants to eventually become the emperor of Northern Zhou, and Yang Di's father Jian was likely not pleased to learn that their family had essentially been removed from the line of succession. When Emperor Xuan died in 580 at the age of only 20 or 21, Jian saw an opportunity to rise to power. Jian's friends in the Northern Zhou court quickly approved him to serve as regent until Jing came of age. But it was obvious to many in the Northern Zhou palace that Jian really wanted to be emperor himself. In 580, a Northern Zhou general led a rebellion against Jian, but Jian quickly defeated the opposing forces. Jian then swiftly executed seven-year-old Emperor Jing's great-uncles, the last possible threats against him. That same year, Jian sent his second-born son, 11-year-old Yang Di, away from home on his first military assignment. Yang Di was a quick-witted and comely child, favored by both of his parents. But Jian didn't want to raise soft, spoiled sons. He wanted his boys to start learning young how to be competent leaders. Yang Di later remembered the moment where his father told him that he was leaving home. In 580, Jian warned his son, quote, You must not get close to mean fellows, nor must you distance yourself from your mentor, Zexiang. If you follow my words, you will render a good service to your country and establish your reputation. If you do not follow my words, you will ruin your dukedom and yourself in no time." End quote. We don't know for sure where Yangdi was first stationed, but he may have been put in command of a dukedom called Yanmen, far to the north of the capital where his family lived. There, he entered into military training under the care of trusted mentors like Zushong. Meanwhile, Yangdi's father, Jian, was preparing to seize the northern Zhou throne. In 581, Jian forced eight-year-old emperor Jing to abdicate. Jian appointed himself Emperor Wen or Wendi of the Sui dynasty in 581. The name Sui was a play on the name of Jian's childhood estate, which was also called Sui. Jian pretended like he was going to be merciful to the eight-year-old former emperor and named the boy the Duke of Jia after deposing him. But just three months after Jian took the throne as Wendi in 581, he had the eight-year-old Duke of Jia quietly murdered. Wendy acted appalled and mourned the child in public, but secretly he was pleased the boy was now dead and unable to pose a threat to his new dynasty. At this point, 12-year-old Yangdi had just watched his father backstab and murder a child to maintain power. He was learning that one needed to be cunning, manipulative, and ruthless in order to be emperor. It was a lesson that Yangdi absorbed all too well. Since his father was emperor, 12-year-old Yangdi was now a prince. His older brother, Yang Yong, was made the crown prince and heir to the Sui dynasty. Wendy assigned Yang Yong to govern northern Qi and began grooming his teenage son to eventually ascend the throne. Yangdi also received an upgraded position after his father became emperor in 581. Wendy appointed him the commander of Bing Zhou and Hebei's president of the branch department of state affairs. Lofty titles for a 12-year-old boy, though his mentors were still on hand to help manage local government affairs. 
Despite these important titles, Yongdi was expected to maintain an austere lifestyle. Huendi and his wife, Chiluo, were famously frugal. They didn't believe in wasting taxpayer money on themselves, and they wanted their children to emulate them. Yangdi's mentors were responsible for making sure that he didn't waste money on luxuries. But Yangdi wasn't always obedient. At some point during Yangdi's early years as a prince, he secretly began building a series of mini-ponds at his compound while one of his mentors, Wang Shao, was out of town. When Wang Shao returned, he was horrified to see Yangdi was wasting money on such an unnecessary extravagance. Wang Shao quickly shamed the young prince into ceasing construction. In 582, Wendy married 13-year-old Yangdi to Princess Xiao, the daughter of Emperor Ming of Western Liang, a vassal state. Princess Xiao was considered unlucky due to her birth date in the second month of the calendar year. Instead of being raised in her father's palace, she was brought up in poverty by her uncle, possibly to keep her bad luck from rubbing off on everyone else in the palace. In 582, it appeared her luck had indeed changed for the better when the court fortune tellers told Emperor Ming that Xiao was the only daughter fit to marry Yangdi. It may seem odd that an emperor would rely so heavily on fortune telling to make such a crucial decision, but divination was already an ancient spiritual practice in China. As far back as the Shang Dynasty, which stretched from 1600 BCE to 1040 BCE, diviners read the cracks in turtle shells, or oracle bones, in order to predict the future. Over thousands of years, several different schools of divination evolved. Emperors started keeping fortune tellers in their entourage and always consulted them before making important decisions. So it was standard practice for Emperor Ming to consult a fortune teller before agreeing to marry his daughter Xiao to Yangdi. Yangdi and his new wife got along well. Both were well-read and greatly enjoyed Southern literature. Yangdi even became fluent in Princess Xiao's primary language, Wu, a tricky dialect only spoken in Southern China. Since Princess Xiao grew up in poverty rather than in her father's palace, she maintained an air of humility that her father-in-law, Wendy, and her mother-in-law, Chiluo, must have appreciated. Yangdi and Princess Xiao were both practicing Buddhists, but Princess Xiao was also an expert in different types of divination or fortune-telling. It's believed that she helped Yangdi learn both divination and physiognomy, a school of thought that believes you can discern someone's personality from their facial features. But despite Yangdi's affection for Princess Xiao, he wasn't able to prevent his father, Wendy, from seizing control of her country, Western Liang. Wendy was gearing up to invade Chen, a southern Chinese empire, and incorporate Chen into the Sui dynasty. Princess Xiao's home country of Liang would play an important role in the upcoming war. So before Wendy invaded, he needed to make sure his vassal state didn't betray him. After Princess Xiao's father, Emperor Ming, died in 585, Wendy decided he didn't trust Xiao's brother, the Emperor Jing, and his suspicions were proven correct when Emperor Jing offered to surrender to Wendy's enemy, the Chen, in 587. Wendy took over direct control of Liang, dissolving Princess Xiao's old kingdom. We don't know for sure how this affected the marriage between Princess Xiao and Yangdi. 
Now, in traditional Chinese culture, a woman is expected to abandon any ties to her old family when she marries. She is essentially absorbed into the husband's family. And given Princess Xiao's unwavering support for Yang Di throughout their marriage, we can only guess that she took that traditional belief to heart. It's unlikely that the dissolution of Liang significantly damaged their relationship. With Liang out of the way, Yang Di's father, Wendy, was ready to launch his war against the Chen in 588. He just needed to decide which of his sons was worthy of leading the Sui army. Yang Di was only 19, but he had spent his teenage years training in military tactics. He had grown into a clever, eloquent, and ambitious young man. He may not have been the firstborn, but he was his father's favorite and the natural choice to lead. Something interesting we should also note at this point, since we're discussing the complicated dynamics of the royal family, when Wendy gave his son Yangdi supreme command over the Sui army, he deliberately snubbed his eldest son, the crown prince Yang Yong. As the future emperor, Yang Yong should have been the one leading the military, not Yangdi. But Wendy deliberately avoided giving his eldest son any significant military or political power. This may have simply been because Wendy liked Yangdi better than Yang Yong, and thus gave his second son preferential treatment. Or it may have been because Wendy was a paranoid ruler, and he didn't want his eldest son to consolidate too much power too quickly. Wendy didn't want to be easily replaced. So in 588, 19-year-old Yangdi was put in command of the entire Sui army. He was about to determine the lives and deaths of 500,000 men. It was Yangdi's first step in proving that he should be the next Sui emperor, the leader of over 45 million people. Now for something we're excited to recommend. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 588, 19-year-old Yangdi was appointed the supreme commander of the Sui army. He was about to lead 500,000 men into his very first war. Serving under Yangdi was his 17-year-old brother, Yang Jun. A kind-hearted and devout young man, Jun was very different in temperament from his ambitious older brother. At some point in his teens, Jun had even contemplated relinquishing his royal title and becoming a Buddhist monk. But his father, Wendy, didn't let him. The upcoming war against the Chen was an opportunity for both Yang Di and Jun to prove themselves as military leaders. And when the Sui invaded the Chen in 589, Yang Di showed himself to be an effective commander. By May of that year, he swiftly led his forces to victory against the Chen. Jun, on the other hand, wasn't a particularly capable military leader. As a Buddhist, he didn't like harming others and lacked the ruthlessness needed for battle. With the war against the Chen finished in 590, Yangdi was put back in charge of Bingzhou while Jun was expected to rule over the newly conquered southerners. 
But the former Chen citizens rebelled against Jun. They gathered together into armies, some a few thousand men strong, and some rebel armies numbering in the tens of thousands. The rebels attacked lower-level Sui officials, sliced them open, and ate them. Such violent tactics required a violent response from the Sui government. But Jun was too much of a pacifist to stop the rebellions and needed the help of other Sui generals to end the fighting. By the end of 590, Wendy forced Jun to give up his command to Yangdi, who was clearly the more capable leader of the two brothers. In fact, Wendy's obvious preferential treatment of Yangdi over his brothers may have been what inspired the young prince to aim for the throne. But first, he needed to get his older brother Yang Yong out of the way. Crown Prince Yang Yong was known to be an affable and honest man, not someone particularly suited for manipulative palace intrigue. He assumed he could patiently wait to inherit the throne from Wendy. But Yang Di had other plans. At some point after emerging victorious in the war against the Chen in 589, 19-year-old Yang Di began to look for weaknesses in his older brother's relationship with their parents. It didn't take Yang Di long to notice that there was ongoing tension between Yang Yong and their father. For one thing, Yang Yong had a taste for luxury that his parents abhorred. For example, Wendy was disgusted when Yang Yong made an expensive suit of armor for himself. He thought Yang Yong was spoiled. Yang Di, well aware of his parents' frugality, made sure to ingratiate himself to his parents by spurning luxuries when he was around them. Whenever he visited, he and his entourage dressed simply. Even his horses and carriages were plain and undecorated. Yang Di's modest appearance, contrasted with his older brother Yang Yong's open desire for luxuries, easily gave him an edge. Even more, Yang Di quickly realized that he could worm his way into power by taking advantage of his older brother's failed marriage. Crown Prince Yang Yong's mother, Empress Chilua, had arranged a match between Yang Yong and an aristocrat named Lady Yuan, but Yang Yong wasn't very fond of his wife. Instead, Yang Yong spent most of his time with his entourage of concubines. His favorite was Lady Yun, a beautiful woman of low-born status. This infuriated Yang Yong's mother, Chilua. As you remember, Chilua and Wendy both prized monogamy. Chiloa hated the fact that her son ignored his wife to spend all of his time with his mistresses. The situation only worsened when Yuan died abruptly in 591 without having given birth to a male heir. Yang Yong moved quickly to promote his concubine, Yun, to the position of first wife. Her sons were not only his heirs, but also heirs to the throne. This horrified Wendy and Chiloa. It went completely against decorum to promote a concubine to first wife and future empress. Even worse, Wendy and Chiloa suspected that their eldest son had murdered his wife so that he could officially marry his concubine. Their suspicion may seem odd, given Yang Yong's reputation as an honest man, but in the cutthroat world of imperial politics, even supposedly honest men sometimes stooped to murder to get what they wanted. Yang Di, observing his mother's anger, saw another opportunity to ingratiate himself. The 22-year-old made sure to appear as though he was faithful to his wife, Princess Xiao. Yang Di had concubines, of course, but he didn't let any of them live with him. 
He also gave away and disinherited all of the sons that he had with his concubines. This was his way of proving to his parents that he wouldn't make the same mistakes as his older brother. None of his low-born sons would be allowed to inherit the throne. Sometime around 591, Yongdi's savvy maneuvering was effective in persuading his mother that he should be the next emperor. Now, Yangdi just needed to convince his father. Yangdi came up with a sneaky plan to rob his older brother of his political allies and convince his father that Yang Yong was a traitor. Wendy's trusted advisor, Gao Jiang, was Crown Prince Yang Yong's biggest supporter. Yangdi needed to eliminate him. Yang Di recruited his mother's help to get rid of Gao Jiang. When Gao Jiang had a child with a concubine after refusing the emperor's offer of a proper marriage, Empress Chilua suggested to her husband that Gao Jiang was a dishonest person. Doubts about Gao Jiang began to form in Wendy's mind. Then, in 598, Gao Jiang failed to conquer Liao Dong in Goguryeo, the kingdom we now call Korea. Empress Chilua convinced Wendy that Gao Zhong failed because he truly wasn't trustworthy. Wendy immediately exiled Gao Zhong from court that year. Yang Di was thrilled. With his mother's help, he had stripped his brother of his most crucial ally. There was no one left to defend his older brother at the palace. What's sad is that Yang Yong was completely aware of the fact that his brother and mother were plotting to overthrow him. When a court diviner confirmed that Yang Yong's days were numbered, he built a fake, unadorned village in his palace and often pretended to live there in an attempt to change his fate. In Chinese culture, you can sometimes circumvent ill fortune or a dire prediction by pretending to be a different person or changing your name or location. Yang Yong was likely trying to subvert the fortune teller's prediction by playing a trick on the supernatural forces that determined his destiny. But no amount of praying could save Yang Yong from his cunning and ruthless brother Yangdi. The final blow came after Yangdi convinced his allies to begin a whisper campaign against his brother in the late 590s. One of Yangdi's allies, Ji Wei, told Wendy that Yang Yong was planning to murder him. Allegedly, Yang Yong had announced that Wendy would die in 598. This was the last straw for the emperor. In the winter of 600, Wendy officially stripped Yang Yong of his status as crown prince and disinherited him. Many in his entourage were executed, and Yang Yong himself was permanently imprisoned in the Eastern Palace. Late in the winter of 600, Wendy officially made his second son, Yang Di, the crown prince of the Sui dynasty. Yangdi couldn't be happier. His plan had worked perfectly. But Yangdi couldn't relax yet. He needed to make sure that none of his brothers took his place as crown prince. His younger brother, Jun, was no longer a threat. Jun's wife, Princess Chui, had poisoned him to death just a few months before Yangdi was named crown prince in 600. But Yangdi's surviving younger brothers, Yang Xu and Yang Liang were furious at him and correctly suspected that he had engineered Yang Yong's downfall. Yang Di decided he needed to eliminate them as threats. In 602, Yang Di manufactured evidence that Yang Xu was planning to rise up and rebel against Wendy. This was enough to convince his father Wendy to disinherit Yang Xu and imprison him. But that same year, Yang Di suffered a potential setback when his protective mother, Chilua, 
died in the summer of 602. She had been his most important ally and his main source of protection against his father's whims. In front of his father, Yangdi's grief bordered on excessive. He wept and refused to eat. But when Yangdi was alone with his friends and servants, he shed his grief-stricken attitude. He secretly had his favorite food snuck into the castle and ate and joked around just as always. Some historians have considered this evidence of Yangdi's callousness and his evil nature, but others believe he was simply protecting himself. Filial piety, or respecting your parents, was a crucial component of Chinese culture. Wendy would have expected his son to mourn excessively. Starting in 602, Yangdi needed to stay in his father's favor while fending off threats from his other brothers without his mother's help. Yangdi was able to keep his older brother, Yang Yong, in check by keeping close watch on him in the Eastern Palace, where Yang Yong was essentially under house arrest. Every time Yang Yong tried to find a way to get a message to his father, Yang Di blocked him. In 604, Wendy grew ill. By this point, 35-year-old Yang Di was sick and tired of pretending to be a monogamous and filial son, and his impatience led him to make two grievous mistakes that almost cost him everything. Yang Di and his ally, the ruthless General Yang Su, began exchanging notes, preparing for Wendy's death. But Yang Su's note on Wendy's health was accidentally given to Wendy instead of Yang Di. When Wendy read the note, he was enraged to realize that his son Yang Di was eagerly anticipating his death. But Yang Di's biggest mistake involved his father's consorts. Around the time that Yang Di's mother died, Wendy finally took on two lovers, Lady Tsai and Lady Chen. Lady Chen was the beautiful sister of the former ruler of Chen, and Wendy adored her. Yang Di noticed how attractive his new stepmother was, and since his father was feeble and dying, he figured he could get away with anything. One night in 604, he tried to rape Lady Chen. But Lady Chen managed to get away from Yang Di. She rushed into Wendy's room and told him that Yang Di had attempted to rape her. Wendy was horrified. It was clear now that his second son, Yangdi, was a malicious and duplicitous young man. He had tricked Wendy into casting away his more honest and righteous son, Yang Yong. It was time to correct that mistake. Wendy ordered his servants to bring Yang Yong to see him, so he could once again make Yang Yong crown prince. It would be an emotional reunion. Father and son hadn't spoken in four years. Yang Di needed to act quickly if he still wanted to be emperor. Before Yang Yong could reach his father's room, Yang Di sent one of his allies, Zhang Hung, into Wendy's bedroom. At Yang Di's command, Zhang Hung murdered Wendy on August 13th of 604. According to some sources, the murder was brutal. Zhang slammed his fists into Wendy's chest over and over, painfully breaking the emperor's ribs and crushing his chest. There are some historians who believe that Yang Di didn't actually order his father's murder, but he acted so suspiciously after his father's death that it's hard to believe otherwise. He kept his father's death in August 604 quiet for eight days, likely so he had time to hide evidence of the murder. He also forged a letter pretending to be his father and ordered his older brother Yang Yong to kill himself. Yang Yong refused. So Yang Di simply had his minions strangle his older brother to death. 
And with his father's corpse barely even cold, Yangdi immediately forced his own stepmothers, Lady Tsai and Lady Chen, to become his concubines and raped them both. After murdering his father and brother, Yangdi finally assumed the throne as emperor on August 21st, 604. But his violent rise to power would have an equally violent end. Time for a quick change of subject. Now back to the story. In August of 604, 35-year-old Yangdi murdered his father Wendy and his older brother Yang Yong and proclaimed himself the second emperor of the Sui dynasty. But there was still a threat to Yangdi's newly established reign. His younger brother, Yang Liang, who commanded an army in Bingzhou to the north. Yang Liang and Wendy had loved each other deeply. They even had two halves of a special imperial seal, which they stamped on every letter to each other to prove the letter's authenticity. After Yangdi murdered Wendy, he forged a letter from his father to Yang Liang and demanded that Yang Liang come to the capital. He likely wanted to separate Yang Liang from his army and arrest him like he had his other younger brothers. But Yangdi's forged letter backfired. He didn't perfectly match the special jade crest his father used, and Yang Liang realized that the letter was fake. Suspicious of the circumstances of his father's death, Yang Liang immediately rebelled against Yang Di and ordered his forces onward towards the capital. But Yang Di's longtime ally, General Yang Su, was able to drive back Yang Liang's forces and capture the prince. Now that his little brother Yang Liang was no longer a threat, Yang Di decided not to kill him. Instead, he threw him in prison. Liang died not long after his imprisonment, though it's unclear exactly when he died or whether he was secretly murdered by Yang Di. With his brother out of the way, Yang Di decided to move the capital east from Chang'an to Luoyang. Construction began in December of 604 and required the employment of two million workers every month. Although the Sui dynasty population was booming, with over 45 million people recorded in a census taken just five years later, this still constituted around 5% of the entire population for one project alone. And the work came at a heavy cost. It's believed around half of the workers died during construction. But this didn't deter Yangdi from launching additional construction projects a year later in 605 to build the Tongji Canal and the Han Conduit in Luoyang. An additional 1 to 3 million men and women from Luoyang were conscripted into digging these canals. On October 2nd, 605, Yangdi decided to go on a grand tour of southern China to show off the wealth of the Sui dynasty. He no longer had to pretend to adhere to his parents' frugality and could freely indulge his preference for the expensive luxuries. He built an enormous dragon boat, 35 feet tall and 1,545 feet long. It had four decks elaborately decorated with gold and jade. The top deck even contained a replica of his palace rooms. Yangdi returned from his southern tour in 606, by that point, construction of the Luoyang Palace had been completed, and Yangdi began spending most of his time in his new, unofficial capital. But tragedy struck later that year. In the summer of 606, Yangdi's eldest son, 23-year-old Zhou, became deathly ill. 
A fortune teller warned Yang Di that his son Zhou was dying because he was being haunted by the ghost of his murdered uncle, Yang Yong. When Zhou died later that summer, Yang Di likely felt responsible for his son's demise. If he hadn't killed Yang Yong, then maybe his son could have been saved. After Zhou's death in 606, Yang Di began preparing to appoint his youngest son, Yang Jian, as the crown prince. But Jian didn't have his brother's humble and frugal personality, and Yang Di was not quite as confident in his second son's ability to rule. With succession now uncertain in the wake of Zhou's death, Yang Di began to fear his older brother Yang Yong's sons might eventually be able to lay claim to the empire. So in 607, Yang Di murdered all eight of Yang Yong's sons. Perhaps wary of all the family drama and death, Yang Di went on an impressive tour that same year to visit the leader of Tujue, a northern territory controlled by the Turks. There, Yang Di exchanged reams of silk for horses and other animals. He also built a massive portable tent for the trip that was over 9,000 feet in circumference. While he was touring in the north in 607, Yang Di embarked on some of the most ambitious political changes and construction projects of his reign. Yang Di wanted as much direct control over his empire as possible. In order to consolidate power, he reorganized the government bureaus, streamlined aristocratic titles by eliminating several different ranks, and restructured the military. Yang Di also wanted to build an empire that would be remembered for its splendor and prosperity. In 607, he began construction on a new Great Wall, which was first built hundreds of years ago during the Qin Dynasty and subsequently repaired and rebuilt during the Han Dynasty. This latest construction project further strained the empire's finances, but Yang Di started executing any officials who disagreed with him or criticized him for overspending on construction projects. With his critics dead, Yang Di felt free to begin yet another construction project in 608, the Great Canal. He forced one million civilians to begin work on the Great Canal immediately. It was yet another expensive project involving millions of citizens that the Sui Empire couldn't afford. That same year, Yang Di's faith in his second son, Yang Jian, began to crumble. Jian was handsome like his father, but he had also inherited some of his father's worst personality traits. He often ordered his men to kidnap women off the streets so he could rape and sexually enslave them by forcing them to become his concubines. Yang Di didn't really care that his son was kidnapping and raping women, but he grew incensed when Jian seized a woman that Yang Di wanted for himself. The feud started due to a recommendation made by Yang Di's older sister, Li Hua, the former empress of Northern Zhou. In 608, she suggested that Yang Di make a beautiful Liu clanswoman one of his concubines. When Yang Di didn't take Li Hua up on the offer, she asked her nephew, Jian, if he'd like to bring the Liu woman into his entourage. Jian happily accepted his aunt's offer. Then Jian's father, Yang Di, had a change of heart. He told his older sister that he wanted the young woman after all. But Li Hua regretfully told him she'd already given the young woman to Jian. Yang Di was furious to learn his son had a woman in his entourage that he wanted for himself. Relations between father and son quickly grew strained. Yang Di grew even more jealous of his son after they went hunting together in 608. 
Yangdi was unsuccessful and didn't kill a single animal, but Jian was able to kill a large number of animals. Yangdi blamed Jian's entourage for driving the animals away from him and stealing his kills. Resentful, Yangdi began investigating Jian in 608, looking for other flaws in his son's character. He soon learned that Jian was sleeping with his dead wife's married sister. Even worse, he was attempting to magically curse his nephews to keep them from inheriting the throne. By the end of 608, Jian was in disgrace. Yangdi kept his son under close guard and replaced his able-bodied guards with elderly men so Jian could never rise up against him. But with Jian out of contention, Yangdi had no idea who would inherit the throne after him. He only had one son left, one-year-old Yang Gao. But Yang Gao was too young to be made crown prince. He was also the son of a concubine, not Princess Xiao. And Yangdi knew that there'd be trouble in court if he tried to make a concubine's son his heir. So for the rest of his reign, Yangdi never appointed a new crown prince. By 609, the Sui dynasty was at its height, with an estimated population of about 46 million, and Yangdi seemed secure in his power. But this was about to change. In 611, Yangdi decided to launch a war against the Korean kingdom of Goguryeo, According to one story, he started the war because he felt insulted by the Korean king, Yongyong, who refused to visit the Sui capital in defiance of Yangdi's orders. However, Yangdi may have also been trying to make up for his father's failed invasion of Goguryeo decades earlier. He wanted to succeed where his father couldn't. Yangdi began conscripting farmers from all over the country for his army, forcing 1,133,800 men into the military. This was a massive strain on his people, especially since Yangdi had already conscripted millions of his citizens to work on his construction projects. The Sui farmers in the north were already dealing with floods and starvation that had wiped out villages and destroyed their livelihoods. Millions were dying, and the Sui dynasty's population was undergoing a rapid decline. Furious that the government was conscripting them instead of providing much-needed help and relief, many of the northern farmers rebelled. Yangdi ignored the northern rebellion and launched his war against Goguryeo in 612. But Yangdi was paranoid and gave his generals little authority in battle, and his unwillingness to trust his own generals led to his swift defeat. Undeterred, Yangdi prepared to launch a second invasion in 613, but he was horrified to learn that Yang Xuangan, son of his former ally, General Yang Su, was leading a rebellion against him. Yangdi had been willing to ignore the northern rebellion led by farmers and peasants, but a rebellion by a military official like Xuangan represented a genuine threat. Yangdi quickly abandoned his invasion of Goguryeo and led his army back to China to stop Xuangan's rebellion. Xuangan attempted to capture the capital city of Luoyang against the counsel of his military advisors, who feared the city was too well guarded for the siege to be successful. As predicted, Xuangan failed to capture Luoyang. So in the fall of 613, he gave up and headed west. Yangdi's forces were able to beat down Xuangan's rebellion within two months in 613. Xuangan realized that Yangdi was about to capture him so he had his own brother, Ji Shen, stab him to death. 
Jishan then tried to kill himself, but he was taken prisoner by Yangdi's forces. Yangdi decided to torture Jishan to death. He left Jishan tied to a post for three days, then ordered his troops to shoot arrows at Jishan until every exposed bit of flesh had an arrow sticking out of it. Then he hacked Jishen's body into pieces and burned it. After Xuengan's failed rebellion, several more rebellions began in the south in late 613 and early 614. The heavy taxes that Yangdi leveled for his Korean wars and the constant drain of able-bodied civilians into the army was making life impossible for commoners in the Sui dynasty. Despite the fact that the Sui kingdom's granaries were full, the food wasn't making it to the people who needed it due to a combination of bandits and government mismanagement. We don't know the exact number, but it's believed tens of millions may have starved to death. Many commoners were reduced to eating the corpses of those who had already died of hunger. It's no wonder that so many rebelled. But Yangdi ignored the multiplying rebellions, convinced after putting down Xuengan that the military would stay loyal to him. In 614, he announced that he planned to invade Goguryeo yet again. But he never got the chance to invade. The soldiers he conscripted kept deserting, and the rebellions only worsened. When his generals tried to warn him about the imminent threat the rebellions presented to him, Yangdi executed or imprisoned them. But Yangdi couldn't ignore the rebels forever. Even former trusted advisors and officials began to raise up armies against him. By 616, his capital Luo Yang was under threat. So that fall, Yangdi abandoned his capital and fled south to Jiangdu. Yangdi's advisors feared his temper and avoided telling him the truth about his precarious situation. He was unaware exactly how much danger he was in. By 617, there were 12 different rebel armies vying for power in the crumbling Sui dynasty. The most important of these rebel forces was led by Li Yuan, a former Sui dynasty official who raised up an army against Yangdi in the summer of 617. By the end of 617, Li Yuan had captured the former capital, Chang'an, along with a huge swath of the former Sui dynasty. At the end of 617, Li Yuan briefly declared Yangdi's 12-year-old grandson, Yang Yang, the new emperor of the Sui dynasty but he didn't plan to let the child hold that title for long. Li Wen appointed himself the Prince of Tang, clearly paving the way to seize control of the empire from the 12-year-old puppet ruler. Yangdi, meanwhile, was still holed up in Jiangdu as 618 dawned, unwilling to listen to any reports of the rebellion's success. At this point, his personal safety was at risk. His royal guardsmen were unhappy with their paranoid emperor. Many of them tried to desert and flee back home to the north, but Yangdi executed any royal guardsmen he caught abandoning their posts. Saima Dekan, one of Yangdi's most trusted generals, began planning a mass desertion of the palace guards in 618. But somehow, this transformed into a plot to murder and overthrow Yangdi. A palace maid warned Yangdi's faithful wife, Empress Xiao, that he was about to be killed. Terrified, Empress Xiao brought the maid to Yangdi, and she told the emperor that his life was in danger. But Yangdi had been protected from bad news for so long by sycophantic officials that he refused to believe the maid. He immediately had her executed. And with that, he sealed his fate. 
On April 10th, 618, two royal guards left the gates of the palace at Jeongdu unlocked. An army of rebels and conspirators, 10,000 strong, burst through the gates. Soldiers captured Yang Di and his beloved 11-year-old son, Yang Gao, and dragged them in front of the rebel army. They listed Yang Di's crimes, some of which included frivolous expenditures, unnecessary wars, and construction projects that resulted in the deaths of thousands of men and women. 11-year-old Yang Gao began to cry during the speech, sensing what was coming. As a potential male heir of Yang Di, the rebels weren't going to let the prince live. Soldiers held the child down and sliced off his head right in front of his father. The boy's blood spattered all over Yang Di's robes. Yang Di was devastated. He knew he was next, but he wanted to die without losing face. He asked the conspirators to poison him, but they refused. Instead, Yang Di was strangled with a length of silk, his death marking the bloody end of the Sui dynasty. In the summer after Yang Di's murder in April of 618, Li Yuan forced Yang Di's 12-year-old grandson to abdicate the throne, and on June 18th, he declared himself Emperor Gaozu of the new Tang dynasty. Despite Yang Di's many personal failings, Emperor Gaozu still respected the government restructuring and streamlining that Yang Di had accomplished during his reign, and he incorporated many of these changes into the government of the Tang dynasty. Emperor Gaozu was able to make good use of Yang Di's impressive architectural achievements, like the Grand Canal. Its construction resulted in a massive loss of life, but in the end, the Grand Canal significantly improved the Tang Dynasty's ability to transport people and goods across China. But these achievements weren't enough to save Yang Di from himself. And it's perhaps fitting that the man who rose to power by shamefully murdering his father and older brother ultimately suffered an ignominious death at the hands of his own men. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode releases every other Wednesday. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Jeanette Manning and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 